Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. We have the microbiome on our body with all this bacteria and fungus and viruses. Okay, so this huge group of organisms living on our skin and inside of our body. And those guys have differential constituents in different parts of the body. So we know if you take a little culture or do the genetic testing of the microbiome in your armpit, it is totally different than what's going on in your foot. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Today marks the kickoff of Skin Month on the Less Stress Life podcast. This is in celebration of the book I have coming out next month. April 14th is the official ship date, but it is available for pre-order on Amazon. I'll put the link in the show notes. It's called The Eczema Relief Diet and Cookbook, Short-Term Meal Plans to Identify Triggers and Soothe Flares. We've got an awesome lineup for you that I think is relevant to everyone because everyone has skin. First up, we have integrative dermatologist Dr. Peter Leo, and later in the month, we have integrative dermatologist Dr. Raja Sivamani from California. We also have my colleague Jennifer Karen Brand talking about eczema in little kiddos, and Chris Masterjohn, the micronutrient guru, talking about nutrients for skin. Should be a great month. Let's get started. So I have with me today on The Less Stress Life, Dr. Peter Leo. And if you don't know him yet, I'm sure you will be tuning into whatever he's got in the future. He is the founding director of the Chicago Integrative Eczema Center and clinical assistant professor of dermatology and pediatrics for Northwestern University. He attended Harvard Medical School and stayed on as a dermatology resident at Harvard, where he was chief resident. So Dr. Leo is kind of, I think he's kind of well known as speaking concisely, but intelligently about integrative dermatology. And he's here to share some great insights with us today. Welcome, Dr. Leo. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So how does a person get into integrative dermatology? Because this is a big topic, big area, right? We're going to talk a lot about eczema today, but of course, so many other skin conditions. And I often hear, I work with a lot of kids, challenging group as you do. And a lot of people say like, how do you even find an integrative dermatologist? And so how did that happen for you? 
Yeah, I mean, I think right now it is really hard to become an integrative dermatologist because there's no way that we really have set up. There's not a pathway that's been clearly defined. And I kind of feel like we're trailblazing it a little bit and trying to build it. I think, you know, my good friend, Dr. Raja Sivamani, he and I have been working on putting together more of a formal curriculum and almost like flirting with the idea of building a fellowship of sorts for people who are interested. But for me, it happened kind of organically. I've always been interested in alternative approaches. I've been interested in energy medicine and traditional Chinese medicine medicine. And during medical school, I actually spent some time working with Ted Kapchuk and David Eisenberg, who were both kind of real pioneers of this area and learning about alternative medicine. And then when I did my residency, I sort of became the person that they would say, well, he's interested in this stuff. Why don't you talk to him about it? Why don't you see if he knows anything about this? And little by little, I became known as that. And then I decided to make it a little more formal. So I spent a full year studying medical acupuncture, which was fantastic. And then a second year still practicing and kind of apprenticing and learning more about it. And that really was eye-opening and really grounding to get deep into a different tradition. And from there, it's just been kind of going and learning as I go. It's been exciting. Cool. I feel like I've known a lot of doctors who've gotten into medical acupuncture. Was that something that you saw results from in your dermatology practice while you were kind of practicing and studying with it? Because it's not something I see or necessarily hear a lot of my clients doing. Yeah, I definitely do see some results. And I think it's a very powerful modality. One of the things I love about acupuncture is that it's doing a lot of things at once for the patient. So it's like a great adjunctive treatment. For a lot of things, I don't know if it's strong enough by itself, you know, in the derm world, like for certainly for pain, for back pain and muscle pain and muscle injuries, it's fantastic. But for derm stuff, a lot of times it's not quite enough to do by itself. But as an adjunctive or an additional therapy, it's really good. It just sort of strengthens the body, helps things work better, helps with itch, helps with anything stress related too, because I feel Mm -hmm. like it's a way of kind of harmonizing the body again. Cool. Great. So even though there's a lot of skin conditions, we are going to focus on eczema a little bit today, which is pretty widespread, affects a lot of people. And the challenges are when you're digging into the research, it's like, do this, but not too much, or do this, but not too much. So there's a lot of contradictions when I'm in the research. The nice thing that you and your colleague, Dr. Sivamani, are doing is that you are trailblazing and you're doing a lot of research, which we appreciate because we always need more research. So let's first talk about what is eczema and what are some limitations around. Essentially, my question is, it's all very different. Like we have one name and there's lots of types, right? Exactly. I think that right there is the deepest point maybe of our whole time together here, because to understand that, I think really explains so many pieces. It's like, ah, because it's not one thing. And that's why there's so many different approaches and so many different causes and why some people say, I just cut gluten and I'm totally clear. Mm -hmm. And then I have other families who are like, I totally cut gluten for six months and it hasn't helped. Why not? You know, everyone said that was going to be the secret because it's probably not one thing. But eczema is a set of conditions that are defined by being itchy rashes on the skin. They have to be itchy. They have to be recurrent or constant. So some poor people literally have no clear days, but most people have ups and downs, but it has to be chronic and intermittent. You can't just be a one-time or a couple-time thing. And the other key piece to eczema is that it has a characteristic appearance and distribution. So there are other rashes that are itchy and chronic, but to be eczema, it has to have that look and that distribution, and that's age-related as well. So once you have those three things, you're in that group of eczema, and then there's lots and lots of different types. So atopic dermatitis is sort of the most precise version that we have, and then we'll kind of call it that when we're doing a scientific study or a research piece, but eczema is a little broader than that. We'll include things that are close to it. So numular dermatitis, follicular type eczema. Some people actually have uh, non-atopic atopic dermatitis. Some people call that atopiform dermatitis, where they don't have any other allergies. They have no high IgE level. They don't get hives. They don't have foods driving it. Now, it's controversial. Are they the same? Are they different? Do they, should we call them a totally different name? And we don't know. And then things in the eczema group, even are things like seborrheic dermatitis, contact dermatitis, all those things can also look like it, have similar features, but have different ways to approach it and different underlying ideologies. Okay, cool. 
So when I think about skin stuff, I almost have to segment. Let's talk about it from the outside and then let's talk about it from the inside. So let me talk about it from the outside first, because this is where I don't know if you want to talk about this. You know, you listen to your clients really closely. I listen to mine really closely. I pay attention to where that eczema is presenting to. Do you think that there's a relationship with where the eczema presents on the body? And, you know, one example, I'm going to bring this up because you said you study, you were interested in Chinese medicine. For example, Chinese face mapping, which I've had a hard time finding like a perfect reference for, but I just pay a little bit of attention. Like, hey, according to ancient Chinese medicine, which was usually right about everything before we usually rediscover it later, you know, there are some associations with this part of the body and that. So my general question is, what do you think about presentations on where it recurs in the same part of the body? Is there anything? to be said about that. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it can have a couple of different meanings for sure, but I think there's meaning in all of it. A lot of it is just sort of beyond us, right? I think one day, hopefully, we'll say, oh my gosh, now we totally understand why it was here. So for example, like on babies, if you notice, most of the babies have really bad eczema on their cheeks, but the nose is usually spared, right? Some people call that the headlight sign. That's been co-opted well as well in the topical story withdrawal community. They have a similar thing they call the headlight sign, but it was described you know, in the 50s as being a sparing of the nose. And we didn't know why, but it turns out that now natural moisturizing factor is actually has a differential maturation rate in different parts of the face. And there was a beautiful paper mapping this. And I was like, oh my gosh, you just answered a very, very old question because it turns out the nose matures really quickly within the first few weeks or month of life, whereas the cheeks take many, many months or even years to hit full maturity. So the skin barrier is in many patients much, much weaker in the cheeks. So what we're seeing is the kind of Latin term for it, the locus minoris resistentia, right? The point of least resistance. That's where the weakness is and that's where you see it break out. So that'd be one one example of what that means. Another example might be things in allergic contact dermatitis. If things are touching the skin or rubbing the skin or exposed to something, we'll totally see it happening in the same place. So for example, many of my patients become sensitized to nickel, right? Nickel metal, why? It's so weird, but there's a very widespread allergy. So we'll look on their belly and right where their belt buckle sits or in jeans, you know, jeans have metal backing, they'll have a bright red dot. And when you see it, you're like, I think you're allergic to metal. And some patients are like, you're right. This makes perfect sense. No wonder. Other patients are like, I don't think you're right. That can't be. That's crazy. And I'll be like, could you just do me a favor and put a piece of duct tape on that? And they come back a month later and they're like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this. You know, that's really what that was. So there are those kinds of things. And then you're right. There also probably are internal connections, like things happening inside the body that are bringing it out in certain areas, because we now know there's a whole additional layer, even that Chinese medicine didn't really explicitly know. I think they, in a way, they accounted for it because there's so much wisdom there, but I don't think they really knew about it so overtly. But the concept of microbiome, right? We have the microbiome on our body with all this bacteria and fungus and viruses. Okay. So this huge group of organisms living on our skin and inside of our body. And those guys have differential constituents in different parts of the body. So we know if you take a little culture or do the genetic testing of the microbiome in your armpit, it is totally different than what's going on in your foot. So what they're doing, and they're very sensitive to change and disruption, they affect eczema hugely. And we can see these shifts happening there too. So inside the body, outside the body, the microbiome, which is a big part of our body that has sort of been invisible and probably other things I don't even know about yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to dive into that microbiome piece here shortly. But let me ask a question on behalf of some clients. I don't have the answer to this, and you may not either. I think there's some stuff out there that says, hey, if you've got eczema presenting on your trunk, it's different than when it's presenting on your outer limbs because, hey, it's good, a little closer to your organs. Because someone said that to me recently. Isn't it better that it's moving farther away? And I said, I don't think we know that for sure. Do you have any opinions? 
Yeah, I don't think so. You know, I think from the skin's perspective, I think its closeness to organs probably is not so much in its setup. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing that from a 3D standpoint, but I think from the skin standpoint, it's each different area is different. So my sense is probably no. A lot of my patients are really severe and they're pretty much covered. So I see that a lot. And then we do know there are these age-specific patterns. So many adults have severe, severe hand dermatitis, but also have head and neck involvement. Mm -hmm. Um, But some of them also have trunk involvement. So my guess is there's probably something to it, but maybe not not quite that line of reasoning is my guess, but who knows? I don't think I really know for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned head and in my research, there's often a type of fungus that's overgrown on the head. So do you see, I mean, we see this like starting cradle cap, which we don't call eczema, but it's a derm condition, right? So do you see that that is a, like, do you have a culture for fungus topically or do you find that, like, how often is that an issue? No, it's a great point. So yeah, so malassezia is the yeast that overgrows in some patients at least with this head and neck dermatitis pattern. And it is indeed similar to or the same one that is causing seborrheic dermatitis in babies, which you know I do classify as an eczema. It's in that family. So it is not atopic dermatitis, of course, but it is an eczema. And you know, for babies, it's usually malassezia sympodialis or malassezia globosa. So there's different subspecies. It turns out they are really, really hard to culture. A regular culture thing that we do in clinic will not grow them. So you'll get a false negative, unfortunately. So if you just swab it and say, let's see, you know, like you would for tinea, it will not unfortunately grow and it requires very specialized growth conditions. And that's one of the hard parts that we've learned the hard way about the microbiome because we've done just these very crude cultures. But it turns out in that what happens in a culture medium is the big guys fight each other and you might see one or two strains, you know, but there's actually a whole harmony that's happening and a whole global community on the skin that's there. So we've had to do better and better tools to figure that out. But absolutely, that's a problem. Now, the question here becomes one of chicken and egg. Is this just like a pathogenic bacteria or yeast that's causing trouble? Or is there some underlying deficiency that is allowing this normal commensal, which it is because all of our skin has some malassezia on it, but in this situation, it's going to be overgrowing. So is it that there's some underlying deficiency or overproduction of some fat, something that makes it go crazy? And so you get stuck in these chicken and eggs a lot. So if Mm -hmm. you're just like, well, let's just nuke this yeast, you know, it's like, okay, but if we don't fix the underlying problem, then you've just nuked the yeast temporarily and it might bounce right back. Alternatively, Alternatively, you know, sometimes fixing the skin or strengthening the skin can make the bacteria or yeast that's going crazy disappear. So, do you know what I mean? It's all in that that very complex interplay and balance, which I think is amazing. What keeps me so excited about it because it's complicated. But yes, absolutely, the yeast overgrowth is a big problem, and for certain people, we do blast the yeast quite literally, and that seems to make a huge difference. Yeah. And on that note, you had said it's hard to get this to culture if you just go into your doctor and say, "Hey, can we just swab this area in my head?" I've experienced that with clients. It comes back negative. And then apparently, you use different types of fungal medications. I'm a huge fan of antifungals if necessary. And you use different ones for different types of fungus. But depending on what someone goes on, sometimes they improve dramatically. And so despite a negative culture, I'm like, what does that teach us? It teaches us that there must be some fungal component typically. That's a great point. You're right. And certainly that's how some things are discovered, right? It's like we couldn't see it, but it sure responded. And actually, there's a fancy name for that concept, which I love. And that's called a diagnosis ex juventibus. And it literally just means you made the diagnosis by what helped, right? So you use an antibiotic and it helped them. So boy, it sure seems like the bacteria was overgrown. Use an antifungal and it helped them. Boy, it sure seems. Now, the only little trick here is that so many of our medicines, they're actually Swiss army knives, that they don't just do one thing. And there are very few things that are pure. And so that's one of the little pitfalls where it's like, gosh, I think this is antibacterial, you know, so this must be a bacteria. But for example, in rosacea, it turns out that we use a lot of antibiotics for it. But in recent years, we've really been able to find that you can use such a low dose that it doesn't actually hurt any bacteria. And it turns out that antibiotics are really anti-inflammatory too. So there are these weird little secondary things. And it's true of a lot of antifungal agents. They have some effect on our own immune system, which makes things even trickier, right? 
Mm-hmm. Totally. Tell us what that Latin word was again. Diagnosis ex juventibus. Diagnosis ex juventibus. And it's making a diagnosis by trying something empirically and seeing that it helps, which is really kind of neat, right? Cool. I do like that. You know, the other thing is we talk a lot about the microbiome inside and outside of our body. I think people talk about fungus or we're like, quote unquote, candida and people liked it, but there's an entire microbiome or the fungal ecosystem. And I think that's something that we haven't really tapped into or we don't talk about as much as the microbiome, or maybe we just kind of bundle them together, but they are a little different. And I think we just don't understand our fungal ecosystem as well as we maybe could. Oh, I 100% agree. I think you're so right. And what we're hearing now is people are just starting to understand this microbiome part Mm -hmm. and the viral biome, right? There's a whole viral piece too that's doing their whole thing. There's these bacteriophages and they're all doing their piece too. So it's, it's amazing. It's so much more complicated. And it's one of those things, the more we learn, then we're like, oh my gosh, there's even more. Like it just keeps going and going. Right. Yeah. And to be clear, although most people listening to this are well aware, but what you're taking as an antibiotic, that's for bacteria and antifungals are different and antivirals are different. So even though the meds are Swiss army knives, sometimes if we're doing one thing and it's not working, it can be a different ecosystem essentially. So what's really common with eczema is topical staff. We see that everywhere, right? In the research, it's like topical staff, topical staff, topical staff. So personally, I see a lot of internal overgrown staph and strep. What do you see? I've heard that like maybe people, I don't think we unanimously agree on this. And I think we're looking at it in different ways. So tell me how you feel about this. Yeah, I mean, we think that there's definitely a staph imbalance in a lot of these patients. And you're right. I mean, it's definitely, we're seeing it on the skin a lot, but it's probably internally imbalanced too, because we know the skin and the gut are intimately connected. So what's going on in the skin tends to be reflecting what's going on in the gut. So I don't think that's weird at all to see it internally as well. The thing about the skin that we've learned, and this is still kind of controversial, we're right at the cutting edge, because if you were talking to a different dermatologist, they might say, well, this is kind of what what we had learned when I was in medical school is that staph is more of just an opportunist. So when there's broken skin from eczema, then the staff just likes to take up residence there and hang out. And that's kind of how we learned it. And sometimes it can cause an infection and then you could treat that. And that's the only time you should treat. Otherwise, it's just a colonizer, just basically being a punk, but not causing direct trouble. And now I'm convinced and many other people are convinced, but still, I would say not everybody, that staph is actually a major driver of atopic dermatitis in many patients. And that that staph is not just a colonizer, not just a bystander, but it is actually driving it. And now we have some mechanisms too, because we know one of the things that it does, it makes a number of toxins. So these endotoxins that it produces, like delta toxin, you can actually show in an animal model that if you take this toxin, this protein-based toxin putting on the skin, you actually cause skin breakdown and damage. So this is like amazing. And this has really, really turned everything on its head just in the past few years, you know. And I, I think, again, everyone's slowly kind of realizing this is the real deal. And then that really does bring up that same question we kind of alluded to at the beginning, though. Is it the staff coming, you know, from totally external that's driving all this? Or are there host weaknesses that are allowing it? And like most controversial truths, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. There sort of has to be a host deficiency, a skin breakdown, some problem with the immune system in terms of fighting it. And then we have thus opportunity bacteria that becomes not so opportunistic anymore and now is actually becoming a conductor and influencing the skin. So you get stuck in these cycles. And that's very much how I view atopic dermatitis. Eczema is a disease of cycling. You get trapped where the skin is inflamed, the bacteria is out of order, the immune system is going crazy to try to balance all this. Meanwhile, the skin barrier is caught in the crossfire, ripping you know, getting ripped apart, getting broken down, toxins, literally scratching and rubbing, ripping the skin apart. Mm-hmm. And then we have all the behavioral pieces. Now this is all affecting behavior and sleep. And we know how important sleep is. So now you have people getting crummy sleep. They're totally stressed out. Their skin is falling apart. Their immune system's exploding. It's like, oh my gosh, how do we get you out of this, right? This is a bad setup. 
Oh, totally. I tell people, <laughs> I tell my skin clients all the time, I'd way rather deal with just a digestive condition because at least it's not inside, outside and all over. And let's go back to outside. Right now we are in a change of seasons and sometimes skin changes with the weather. Now, when you're reading dermatology research, it's all about TEWL, right? To- mm-hmm. is it total Trends. estimate. Trends. Trans epidermal water loss. Water yeah. loss. So is that what we're looking at with weather? When the weather becomes dry and we're losing humidity in the air, is it affecting water loss through the skin or is it something else? Yeah, it shouldn't be. You know, a normal healthy skin should have a pretty constant transepidermal water loss. It does change throughout the day and changes throughout different stuff that's happening. But if your skin is healthy, it keeps that water loss down. When the skin barrier is damaged, then the transepidermal water loss goes up. So that's really an indicator of skin barrier damage or dysfunction. During the winter, one of the things that happens is just that our stratum corneum hydration goes down. So as there's less humidity that's relative, and of course, as the air is just cold and changing on us, I think it's just hard on the skin and starts to chap and chafe. And that then leads to the loss of water in the stratum corneum. And then if there's any even little tendency to have the barrier problem, that's when you start seeing the barrier get leaky and you get transepidermal water loss increase. Mm -hmm. Actually, let's talk about leaky skin because that is sort of like a Dr. Peter Leo term that he loves, right? (laughs) Yes, that's one of my favorite made up terms because, you know, really I learned about it from the alternative community in terms of leaky gut, right, which is often made fun of. And when I talk about it at a more conventional group, I have to be really careful and I Mm -hmm. introduce them to it slowly because many people are like, oh, it's a bunch of woo woo. Come on. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is very real. Like this is an actual thing. You can actually show it with sugars. We can, you know, I go through some of the science and then everyone's kind of like, wait, really? And I'm like, yes, really. But it's very much like what we see on the skin. So I like to call it leaky skin and leaky gut. Those two run hand in hand. Yeah, totally. Okay, so let's talk about another thing that I hear about a lot, which is food and eczema. How many people come into your office and want to know if food and eczema are related or how they're related? I'd say all. I think pretty much 100%. Mm-hmm. So what is the relationship there? It is really, really interesting to me and really complicated to me. And uh, probably the truth is that it is not one answer, right? So for some people, I really think there is a group of people, and man, are they lucky, where they can find a food or foods that, if not truly trigger them, but they make them more susceptible or make everything worse, and they can remove those foods and they are golden. Those guys are lucky ducks. They are patients who almost never make it to me, but they are very busy uh, telling everybody on the internet (laughs) about their success which makes me a little sad because it'd be a little bit like, hey, my taxes weren't too bad this year. You know, I'm so happy. I'm going to go buy something nice. And then your poor neighbor who got crushed with taxes kind of feeling like, did I do something wrong? You know, how come my taxes were so high? So it's a little funny when we think about it, because I wish that were the answer for everybody. That's one group. There is probably a middle group that I really think is interesting where I think they have bad diet. I think there are foods that are pro-inflammatory that are not good for them, that there's a whole part of this larger holistic health piece that is just out of whack. And if they get stuff better and they cut out some of the bad foods and just eat generally healthier, I think they do better too. So that's kind of the middle group. And then there's kind of the most extreme group that I unfortunately get a lot of because by the time they make it to me, I'm a referral center only. And I'm usually seeing patients that have seen a few other practitioners. They come in and usually it begins, they're crying because they feel incredibly guilty, incredibly ineffective. It's usually the mom, you know, for better or for worse, it's the moms who carry the guilt and they're sobbing and they're like, you know, we saw a really great naturopath or we saw a great dietitian or we saw a great holistic doctor or even, you know, a pediatrician, a conventional doctor who said, we think this is food. And we did 
did gazillions of dollars of testing, some of which was conventional and covered, some of which we paid, you know, four or $500 to do IgG testing and all this stuff. And we identified all these things and we tried it, you know, we tried it for a number of months. And honestly, typically what they'll say is this, it got a little better. It seemed like it was getting better. It really did. And then things fell apart and we tried longer. And then we saw the practitioner again. And a lot of times they'll say, well, you just got to hold it up longer. Six months isn't long enough, you know? Mm -hmm. And then the mom starts falling apart and the kid starts falling apart and everyone's falling apart. And so it's a real hard moment. And what I often will say at that point is I'm like, please don't blame yourself. I'm like, is it possible that if you did this forever, maybe, you know, at some point it would work? Yeah, it's possible. I, you know, scientifically, you can't prove a negative, you know, is it, can I say a hundred percent of the time that, you know, hundred percent surety that a purple truck with, you know, yellow stripes will never pass in front of my office? No, you'd have to wait forever to say never. So I can never know. But I think that the risk benefits are now flipped now to put the stress on you to try to do all this avoidance. You're failing it. The, meanwhile, the kid's miserable and covered in eczema and covered in staff and, you know, totally falling apart. It's like, I don't think this is the right path anymore for this group of people. And despite all that, despite the fact that come to me, you know, and all this stuff, sometimes I say, no, we still want to keep trying. And that's a real hard moment for me. So I've seen that, you know, I'm, I'm an old man now. I've been doing this for a long time. So many, many, many hundreds of patients, if not thousands now, because I focus on eczema and that's a hard moment, you know? It is. And you said so many important things there. A couple things that I want to pull out. Everyone needs a good diet, right? But you don't need to be in food jail. And if you're in food jail, then you're creating more stress, which I would love to talk about the cortisol. Oh, I love that. I love that term too. Food jail. That's brilliant. Food jail is like not okay. And I get a lot of people at that point too. But I find a lot of reward in like getting out of food jail with people because really what's driving the food issue, like maybe it was a little bit of a food issue. So it's good to have, I always use a sprained ankle analogy where, you know, if we sit on the couch for a little bit, that can be like just reducing some of the inflammation that we may be triggering by what's going in our mouth, whatever that is. But it's not like you don't just like sit on a couch when you have a broken ankle and it's like perfect. That's not typically an answer. So you need to like cast it and do some other modalities and then be able to get up and like resume life and not be sitting on the couch. And I feel like that's the simplest way to talk about it where people are like, oh, I see that now. Okay, that makes sense. So you said something else that I think is really important that I have learned through practice as well. There's no amount of food changes that if you have topical and this crazy staph infection, it will not fix that. Like you have to address that staph infection because when it's really angry, like you can very clearly see it. I'm sure it walks into your office and you can just see it, right? Um, (laughs) When that's going on, like I feel like that's priority. You have to fix that first because when that's angry, like nothing's going to improve. Totally. Thank you. Thank you. And I love the couch analogy with the broken foot or broken ankle. I love that. Yeah, cool. Good. And actually, as you were talking, you mentioned a couple things about testing types and whatever. And I have an episode about that. I think it's 23. Don't do any food testing before you listen to this. Just so people understand, like it's not a fit for everyone. I mean, sometimes it's like a good tool, but it's inappropriate to say we're going to limit this stuff forever and ever and ever. I mean, there are some outliers there, but it's not super appropriate because like we're here to enjoy life and enjoy our time. So we talked a little bit about topical staff there. So let's talk about something that's being used a lot now for topical staph and inflammation, which is a compounded treatment of a lotion with a little bit of an antibiotic. Will you tell us a little bit about that and how you use that in practice? Sure. So about six years ago now, I had a patient who was pretty severe, had been on lots and lots of heavy duty stuff, who called me and said, we heard about this guy, Dr. Richard Aaron, who's originally a South African dermatologist. He was practicing in London. He practiced most of his career in London. And he came up with this concept that if you mix a little bit of steroid and a little bit of mupirocin in the UK and in South Africa, they use fusidic acid, like another topical antibacterial, which we don't have here in the States, but it's a close cousin in a way of, of mupirocin and put it in a moisturizer base and you put it on, you know, three to six times a day it works. 
And when she told me this, I'm like, well, that just sounds silly. You know, I mean, come on, that's super diluted. I'm like, you have all this stuff in your house. You know, like literally they had beta-methasone, they had mupirocin. I'm like, you have it. And she's like, can we just try it? And I said, sure. I'm like, absolutely. If this, you want to try it, we can try it. It's not going to hurt you. You know, it's very diluted. So go for it. So I called in the prescription to the compounding pharmacy. They made it. You know, it's not super expensive. It's not super cheap either. I think they paid, you know, most we pay like between 80 and 120, depending on sort of the, how we make it and, and how much we give them, et cetera. Worth a night of sleep. Oh, definitely worth a night of sleep, right? And, that, and for many people, that can be, you know, three, four weeks of medicine in the beginning and sometimes many months once they're better, you know, and they're using a lot less. So it's, you're right. It's a great way to put it. So I kind of forgot about it. And a week later, the mom called me and the mom was sobbing into the phone so much so that she couldn't, you know, when you're crying so hard, you can't talk. She was mm-hmm. just sobbing. And I had this terrible feeling that like, I really thought that the patient had died. I really did. I'm like, what's the matter? What's going on? And she finally caught her breath and she said, it's the best thing you ever gave us. And I was like completely caught off guard. I'm like, wait, what? What are we talking about? And I had to go back to the note. And I'm like, oh my goodness. I said, this is incredible. I'm like, so she's okay. She's like, she's not only okay. She's the best she's been in years. She's back and she's running around and she's so happy. I'm like, oh my gosh. So the next day I get a call from another family because I run a support group and these guys knew each other from the support group and they talked and they said, we want to try it. And I have to be honest, I gave the same spiel. I said, I don't think it's going to help. It's really diluted. You have all this medicine, like you've been on all these powerful things, but I'm like, go for it. And I kid you not. And this is when I knew there was something, we were onto something. They called me a week later and said, this stuff's amazing. So then I said, okay, okay, we're onto something here. You know, this is real. And I started recommending it to people. And then I kind of did a write-up. I did a write-up, I think about 116 patients, kids and adults that had tried it. And we split it into groups of people that had been on essentially like a mid-potency steroid or above, like to kind of prove that it was helping people that kids, you know, when I tell it to my colleagues, they're like, well, whatever, they're just using something. They weren't even using anything. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm like, you have to say, these are my patients. Like we've been doing lots of stuff. We have regimens, we write stuff out. We've been like, I'm telling you, you know, and it's still, it's still very controversial. When I speak about it, there's a lot of pushback, but I'm quite convinced that it is an incredible, incredible therapeutic approach that has helped tons of my patients. And I can legitimately say people that I thought were going to need a systemic agent, some of them actually turn around on the Aaron regime. And since then I've gotten to know Dr. Aaron. I got to go down to Cape Town, South Africa and hang out with him and do some lectures there. And it was just stunning. And he's a wonderful, wonderful, dedicated guy. And that helped me too. Once I met him, I'm like, oh, he's not making anything off this. He's not a shill. He's not a charlatan. This guy is truly dedicated. He cares so much about his patients. He's 80 years old, by the way. Mm -hmm. He just turned 80 and he's getting ready to kind of wind down, but he is just the most wonderful guy. So I'm a huge fan of it. And I really think he is someone who has contributed to the field and pushed things forward. And I think we can't take that away from him. Uh, Even if maybe, Maybe this won't always be used. Maybe someone will still modify it or find some better approach because, you know, one of the things people don't like is they don't want to put mupirocin out into the environment too much because it might make resistance. There are some issues, but I still think I give him all the credit for this incredible innovation. Yeah, I think I felt similarly. At first, I was like, no, I don't think, you know, because for whatever reason. But when you see people that are dealing with topical staff and you're like, oh, my gosh, this needs to calm down. Like this is driving too much of skin barrier breakdown, which if you don't fix that, then you can't really stop it. Like you can only do so much from the inside, as I kind of mentioned a little bit ago. Right. And so if you Mm -hmm. don't address something from the outside, then anyway, so I have been pleasantly surprised in some people. It's not necessarily I don't know if it's fit for everyone, but in some people it can be really life changing, as you just described. So there 
there are actually some modifications. You just mentioned something that, that spawned a question for me. Have you ever tried it with a different agent? You know, if we're concerned that Pearson is an issue for the environment, you know, is there a merit to trying it with different compounds? And then there are some variations in the way people do the regimen as well. Definitely. So yes, so there's a lot of interest, like what other antibacterial stuff we could use. And disclosure is that I worked with a small company based in Memphis, Tennessee called Theraplex. And I helped put together a product that just came out that is sort of inspired by the Aaron regime or like mm -hmm. a baby version of it. It's an over-the-counter version that uses a final concentration of 1% hydrocortisone, which is, you know, kind of all you can do over the counter. And instead of an antibiotic, it uses natural coconut oil. And it turns out that coconut oil is really, really good for the microbiome and seems to get rid of excess staph and rebalance. They've done some studies on it. And I will tell you that it's kind of a neat approach. It's again, not for everybody. You're totally right. In my hands, it's like 70 to 80% of patients have a good effect if you pick them, you know, pick the right patients. But there's still a group where it's like, yeah, wasn't enough or didn't work for me or, you know, some component of the medicine they're allergic to or can't use. And I don't know if we'll get to the TSW group, the topical steroid withdrawal group, but I obviously don't want to use it in people that are have had issues with topical steroids and I want to avoid them completely for that group. So we can talk about that a little bit too. But yeah, but I think this is another approach. And I think a lot of companies now are starting to try to figure out, can we use other things besides the Mupearson? Another person who's really interesting is a guy named Dale Perlman, and he's at Stanford. He's a pediatric dermatologist at Stanford, and he kind of has his concoction that is really interesting. He uses hand sanitizer, alcohol-based hand sanitizer. Yeah. Um, and he, yeah, it's kind of wild, but he wrote a little scholarly paper about it too. And he feels that it has a probably similar effect in that it's killing staff. And this time it's using the alcohol. So no resistance issues. And if you put it in the proper setup, he puts it in an ointment, it kind of takes some of the sting away. You got to be a little careful because it is an alcohol. Mm -hmm. You kind of don't want to put that, but it really does seem to help some people. So lots of creativity in another area that I'm interested in. I'll mention two other things just for the future. One is there's a number of stabilized hypochlorous acid products. So they're kind of like the way that bleach works, but much, much milder than using actual bleach. And they're in these hydrogels. There's a number of products out and some more coming. And then there's a company that's based in the Netherlands that has a really neat product that is based on there are those viruses that like fight the bacteria right in nature and they take one of the tools the viruses use which is this endolysin and it's extremely specific it just rips up staph aureus but it leaves staph epidermidis and all the other good bacteria normal and you can put this in a little cream base and rub it on the skin and it just crushes staph without hurting anything else and it's very very gentle and you can't get resistant to it or at least they, these guys have been fighting the war for three billion years and nobody's resistant so really fascinating stuff coming we think that'll be launching in the U.S. in the next few months. So I'm like, there's all sorts of potential to do new things now. Yeah, no, these are positive things because the other new eczema drugs I was seeing, I was like not feeling optimistic about. <laughs> and this is big. This is big industry, right? So like we're looking for stuff, but I like you just laid out some cool stuff. What's the company called in the Netherlands? That company is called Microbios. Microbios and the product is called uh, GladSkin. I think it's going to have the same name here in the United States, GladSkin. And disclosure, I have done some advising for them because I stumbled upon it when I was writing a paper and reached out because I was like, is this for real? And they're like, it's for real. And so it's been exciting to kind of follow them along a little bit. Cool. You know, I have to mention here at this point, once we start to see like, okay, cool, we can address topical staff, we can reduce inflammation, we can address things on the inside. I feel like I almost like that eczema better now, now that I'm like, okay, yeah, we can predictably most of the time improve it. I like the things being predictable and sometimes skin is very unpredictable. I had a type of eczema that was annoying. I've talked about this a little bit before, not a ton, but it kind of launched after many days in a giant bleach bath or a swimming pool. And so it kind of apparently messed with my external microbiome etc. So my question for you is, I felt like oh, there was a lot of liver support merited. I have a very 
support genetics for this. Do you use any liver support in practice or is that like too taboo and too alternative? For me, I'm like, at the end of the day, we're supporting our internal organs to support our external organs. Not that weird. But what is your vision of that in practice? No, I love the way you put it. And I agree. Like there is a holistic piece to this 100%. I think, yeah, from my standpoint, I don't know if I'd know exactly how to support the liver in the way that, you know, for example, a traditional Chinese medicine uh, herbalist would. So I don't know exactly how I would do that beyond some of the things that I do. And I don't know, maybe you could tell me if, if maybe I'm inadvertently supporting things, not knowing it. But for most of my patients, if not all, I really do want to make sure that they have enough vitamin D because I feel like the vitamin D is doing a lot of stuff both internally, but also helping them fight bacteria. We know it plays a role in some of the antimicrobial peptide. So I want them on D. I do tend to recommend that patients are also taking, there are a couple supplements that I use, but one of the supplements I've been interested in is, is probiotics lately. So getting the good, healthy bacteria back, which we know if the liver is failing, part of the reason that you get this sort of translocation of the bacterial endotoxin is because the gut microbiome and the gut itself is dysfunctional. And one of the theories is that if you add probiotics back, you strengthen the gut. So maybe again, inadvertently helping things out that way. But what do you like to do when you say you strengthen the liver, how do you approach that? Yeah. So I talk about the liver as a waste processing plant and it's a busy waste processing plant that's working all day long. And there are bosses there, like major antioxidants like glutathione. And then there's workers. And so these are just like the nutrients that need to show up to do the work. And there's so many reasons that these nutrients can be depleted, right? A and D and B vitamins, et cetera. So if we've got, let's talk about these pathogenic organisms like Staph aureus, they're going to try to eat up the B vitamins, right? So like we're going to have a lot of workers calling in sick because we don't have enough. So sometimes it's just nutrients right? Um, mm -hmm. Just nutrients, as you kind of alluded to. And I don't think there's one product that does a magical job. Like there is not a product that just addresses this. It's like a lot of things. And there's some other things I look at or the way the skin presents it leads me to this. And then, of course, as you were talking about with like herbalism, herbs, one of the major ways we think herbs help is to support the body to do things on its own. And so sometimes I'll say, I'm going to bring in extra workers at the liver, not even extra workers, but I'm going to help like fill in the sick guys, right? That are not showing up to work because you need these nutrients just to show up and do this process. So that makes perfect sense. And then sometimes there's just some herbs that seem to, and herbal preparations vary so much on like what actually works well by the way they're created and made. So herbs can help stimulate the liver to do its own thing. So I talk about this in terms of the waste processing plant, like, hey, in phase one, you come in and break down boxes. In phase two, you load them up on the truck. And in phase three, you got to get them out of the body. And so I'm always looking at like in a similar way, if digestion is impacted, then of course, things back up on the skin, in my opinion, right? That I almost like prefer to see that because I'm like, yay, this could be simple. Let's just like open mm -hmm. the freeway so mm -hmm. the garbage doesn't stink so bad, right? For me, I think of liver related eczema stuff. Like I think of, I have a lot of personal experience with that. And then I see it present in clients a lot often as well. They kind of have like drier and that's not like a unanimous comment here. But, you know, whereas the people who are really staph affected, bright, red, etc. Sometimes I think of the liver people like there's a lot of history that builds up, right? Like there's a lot, I have a family history of this as well. And then it's just dry and it comes in on from a different way, right? So it doesn't necessarily come on necessarily from an antibiotic round or something like that, but it just kind of mounts over time slowly. So anyway, those are some thoughts I have on that. And then there's also some pieces that I've gotten really careful at listening to people like, do you have swelling before your period or other things like where you're swelling up? because I think about the importance of the lymphatic system. I think it's interesting how some eczema or skin presentation presents in lymph nodes. And that kind of bothers me a little bit. Like, why is it just kind of hanging out there, like in the armpits and in the groin and whatnot? That's a curiosity of mine. I don't know the answer to that. But I think about the lymph system as being how we are getting rid of things as well. And not necessarily an expert there, but if people are already swollen, I think that, hey, it's probably we need to be real gentle on
on how we're moving out garbage, essentially. And everyone's got a different level of garbage coming in. And this is why it's a little more unpredictable. And I frankly tell people, I'm like, oh, you you have a little more unpredictable. Like, I I almost prefer the other version we were talking about earlier with the staff at this point, because I feel like it sometimes resolves just a little more quickly Mm -hmm. now that we have these options. So... Let me go back to that really quickly. We were talking about the Aaron regimen and you go on this product, but the goal is to really get off of the product as soon as possible. And people do this different ways. But my understanding is that you actually don't do it for more than a few days at a time. So you want to tell us about that? Yeah. So it's funny. I kind of live in betwixt and in between a couple of different worlds or maybe many worlds. So I get to see lots of different perspectives. And one world that I'm into that a lot of other dermatologists, again, haven't really engaged with is the world of the topical steroid withdrawal warriors. I don't know if you know much about Mm -hmm. them. There's the group that really has been, in my opinion, really damaged by topical steroids. And I think probably are as a group, they are different than other patients because I don't think most people will have the same response until you really push beyond the limit. But some of these folks have not used too much at all and then get into this TSW mode, which is really, I can tell you, is really hard to treat. Mm -hmm. Um, I've kind of thrown everything in the kitchen sink and I work closely with a traditional Chinese medicine doc, Olivia Sue Friedman. And together we really do some heavy duty plans and and sometimes we fail (laughs) with all of our best stuff sometimes. So we can help a lot of people course, but it is really tough. So I'm so kind of traumatized by what's happened to these folks that I really have tried to internalize minimizing steroids as best I can. So I view them as amazing first moves. What I love steroids for is because they are fast. They're really, really reliable. I would say, you know, 99% of patients are going to respond to those steroids. They're accessible, right? They're inexpensive, so you can get them. And they have a really good safety history. I mean, they've been really in use since the late 1950s. You know, Compound F came out around that time. So we've had some version of steroids. And in a weird way, not to stretch it too far, but in a weird way, they are a natural product. You know, I mean, our body makes endogenous cortisol. So to some extent, your immune system knows what this is. Now, obviously, we're using it in a very abnormal way by smearing it on the skin at a high concentration. But still, it's different than some weird, totally synthetic chemical, like your body knows what to do with it to a certain extent. That being said, I don't like when people are using them for long periods of time without a break. Dr. Aaron, who I adore and respect, I think he's been masterful at letting people use it and sort of slowly taper down over months or even years. And honestly, as far as I can tell, he has been pretty smooth. You know, there's been very, very little long-term issues with those patients, which is amazing. And I think in part because he's really watching them carefully and in part because it's a fairly low potency story that we're starting with. But that being said, my goal is still to use these kind of uh, when you're flaring up pattern and when you're better pattern. And generally what a lot of people do is they'll use that topical steroid preparation, be it, you know, neat topical steroids by themselves or in the Aaron regime or any sort. Do that for up to a week. You know, I'll usually say, yeah, three to five days, get better. We can reliably see that if we're treating appropriately. And then ideally come off for a little. And usually for my more moderate and severe patients, coming off doesn't mean you just get to just relax. You're still doing all of your regimen. You're still maybe doing your, you know, tons of moisturization, but you may have a non-steroidal medicine. And that could be anything from topical calcineurin inhibitor like tacrolimus or pimacrolimus to chrysoboral, the newer one that's, you know, sort of anti-inflammatory. It's kind of wimpy when you put it on as a start but it's relatively helpful for some of those patients in maintenance mode or one of my little concoctions, which is Pink Magic, which is a a topical vitamin D12 preparation that also seems to work fairly well for some patients in this role. Now, not everybody can do that. If they're really severe, they're like, "Uh, doc, as soon as I came down, you know, even to one application, I was miserable. So for certain people, I do follow a more standard Aaron regime, but I try, always try. This way, God forbid, if they do have issues later, it's like, no, look, we really tried to minimize your steroids, you know, so I want to be as conservative as I can. That's yeah. a long answer, but no, that was fine. I want to talk about the pink magic.
magic, but I want to talk about this a little bit as well, because one of the contraindications with wet wrapping, which is what some people use, is that you're not supposed to be using your steroid cream under the wet wraps because we think it affects the adrenals more so. And then when we think about kids, this is concerning. I've just been thinking about this a lot lately. You know, when we think about kids, we are supposed to not be on steroids very long. I mean, they have a surface area to body weight that's different than adults. And so we think we're absorbing more. And I spent part of my morning talking to the medical director at a hormone testing company. I was talking about what we see in adults with metabolized cortisol. And essentially, when we're using topical steroids or nasal steroids, inhalers for allergies, or taking whatever, in a short amount of time, our body stops producing the level of cortisol that would normally like the ebb and flow. We're supposed to have cortisol in the morning so we can wake up and it's supposed to go down in the evening so we can go to sleep. And that starts to get upside down for a lot of reasons. Stress, the nighttime scratching can really impact this whole thing, right? But I was thinking about this a little bit because this is kind of, I'm just rolling it around in my head. And so basically we're putting this on and our body says, okay, we've got enough cortisone, you know, we've got enough hydrocortisone or we've got enough cortisol stores now. So like, we're good, we can shut down production. And so we shut it down. And so the whole thought process behind tapering off of steroids means we're not rebounding as much or it's really hard on us, it rebounds. And I just think about people who are unable to taper off. And I wonder if the eczema has already created so much stress in their life that their DHEA, let's say, is really compromised. And so they don't have that because that helps kind of buffer and helps rebound it. So I just kind of wonder, like, these would be hard people to look at hormones in because they're going to be a little skewed when we're on steroids anyway. But usually DHEA is not really affected by that. So anyway, I'm just rolling around in my brain the other things that are going on that may help them come off of those steroids a little more simply. Like there's a reason that some people cannot come off as easily as others, you know, and it's the whole compound of their history. No, you're right. And I think it is a complex group. But for the reasons you say, the sleep is activated and disrupted. They're actually under huge amounts of stress. And we know you're right. Cortisol is a stress hormone. So how much is chicken and egg? Now, the good thing is they're actually, as part of getting FDA approval for topical steroids, they actually have to show absorption and they have to show effect on the adrenal. So the good news is that most of the steroids we're using in kids have actually been tested, in some of them for many months at a time even. So you actually can get a sense. So they do that court stim test. So they can actually see how your adrenal gland is responding. And and generally speaking, the absorption is so low from a system-wide perspective for most people using incorrectly that it's not an issue. That is, of course, not true, though, when you put people on oral steroids. And one of the crazy things we see in, my, in some of my colleagues, you know, particularly, and I don't want to pick on pediatricians. My wife's a pediatrician. I love our pediatricians. But sometimes they'll be very nervous about topical steroids. They'll say, well, gosh, a topical steroid and this, you know, this two-year-old on his face, like, don't you think it's dangerous? And I'll be like, well, kind of. But then this is the kid you gave last week a prednisone pack, remember? <laughs> you gave it to him and it was pumping through the blood vessels in his eye. You're worried about putting a little cream around the eye. You just pumped it through the eye and they go, oh, you're right. I didn't think about that. So by and large, I see way more issues with systemic corticosteroids than any topical steroids. But you're right. You can mimic systemic steroids if you put enough on and a high potency on. Then you actually mm -hmm. do have an absorption problem. But fortunately, most of the time we're below that range. Yeah. I guess a couple factors here are is that a lot of people get lost to follow up or, you know, there's no follow up on let's taper off of things, right? Because we're not meant to be on things necessarily forever. And there is misuse accidentally, right? Like it just happens. Sometimes there's not enough time to educate people on like, hey, we're not supposed to be using this all over. And hey, if you're miserable, what are you supposed to do? So it's a tricky situation. I'm curious. We don't have, I mean, we don't have all the answers to this or maybe not enough time to talk about it, but I'm kind of curious on how they're measuring and how they're looking at the adrenal response as well. But that's good to know. So thank you for that. Okay, let's talk about why your pink magic cream with B12 works topically, because that's not something I've seen a lot of. 
Yeah, this is something that I uh, came across in the literature. There were a number of phase three studies looking at topical cobalamin, vitamin B12. And the thinking is that B12 topically applied seems to inhibit nitric oxide synthase, which is one of the triggering factors, it's so thought, one of the triggering factors for inflammation in, in eczema. And they did these trials and actually showed that it was significantly better than the vehicle. And I read these papers and I'm like, wait a minute, these are like more than 10 years old. Where is this? Why don't we have this? But for reasons that I don't understand, it didn't seem to be a product anywhere, even though someone was clearly looking to make it a product or studying it, but I couldn't find it. So I talked to, we have a local kind of a herbalist and he does all sorts of neat stuff with different natural botanicals and plant oils. He's kind of a natural person who puts wonderful products together. And I called him up and I said, Ted, can you do this? He's like, sure. He's like, it's kind of simple. We just get the B12 powder and we'll make a really good base and we'll kind of follow what they did in this article. And he made this beautiful stuff. And it turns out B12 powder is like crimson, crimson, crimson red. So when you put it in a white creamy base, you get desaturated red. You get beautiful mm -hmm. pink. So we saw this and it's gorgeous. And I've been using it for more than a decade now. So I used it in my daughter when she was first born because she had some eczema. So I got to use it on her and she is over 10 now. <laughs> mm, cool. Very good story. Interesting. And maybe you should have a storefront, Dr. Leo. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you never know. Yeah. I mean, 10 years, maybe I'm going to do something different. So anyway, um, this was so fun to talk about all these things because I feel like, you know, we have some mutual friends, colleagues, and one of my friends who has a podcast about skin, she said, it's hard to find people to talk about this that know much about skin. So it's always fun to like, just be able to mastermind a little bit about what's kind of going on on the underside of what's going on on the outside. So where can people find you online, Dr. Leo? The best place to see what I'm up to and what I'm working on is our Chicago Eczema website. It's www.chicagoeczema.com. And we also have a Facebook page. It's like Facebook slash Shy Eczema. And you can follow us there. And I always try to update my papers and where I'm talking about, who I'm hanging out with and who's shadowing and all this kind of stuff on there. And we do every other month, we have a live meeting, which if anybody's in the Chicago area or not, people come in sometimes from out of town or if they're visiting, we just do an open group. There's no fee. We usually have a little like breakfast and coffee. And that's usually on a Saturday. And I will update the, it still says October on the website, but I'll update it very soon as we get our January date because we're going to push off through the holidays until January. Cool. Well, you're really a service to the eczema community. Thank you so much for what you do. I know it's a big topic. Like people want it to be very quick and fast and topic like an external solution. And sometimes it can be quite a bit more than that. There's just a lot of different topics to talk about. I feel like more so than other conditions. It's internal, external, and everywhere else in between, right? Because there's a whole wild card with stress. If you could leave people with one gut reaction, if they're listening today and they're like, gosh, I found this really great, but there was so much information, I don't know where to start. What would you say to them? I would say that eczema is a serious problem for a lot of people and causes a great deal of suffering. It's not just a little rash. And even though it is super complicated, honest to goodness, we can help a lot of people. And by working together with lots of great thinkers and lots of team approach to try to find the best solution, we can get many people better so that they can go back to their life. Cool. That was great advice. Thank you so much for coming on today. Hopefully we'll have you back again. Thank you again for having me. I'll talk to you soon. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stressed Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stressed Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the 
the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 